0: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Jacob Goldstein, co-host of NPR's Planet Money, has written a book about, well, money that tackles the question, what exactly is money? Where did the concept come from and how did it evolve into the monetary system we have today? The book's illustration of how money is central to our lives, yet ultimately a shared fiction backed by nothing, brings context to the dramatic actions of the Federal Reserve in response to the pandemic and even Trump's tax returns. Goldstein joins us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Nina Kim. The paradox of money as something that's essential, with real impacts on our lives, yet is a construct with no intrinsic value except what we've all agreed to give it, is at the heart of Jacob Goldstein's new book, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. It shows us the fascinating history of money, how it's evolved, and what it teaches us about our current moment. And we want to hear from you what's been your relationship to money. How would you describe what money is but before we dig into all of that, uh, we get an update on the fires that are burning out of control in Sonoma and Napa counties. It's engulfed some 11,000 acres and threatens more than 8,500 structures. We're joined now by Lynn Tolmachoff, a spokesperson for Cal Fire. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Those numbers that I just gave, is there an update from that 11,000 acres?
1: So firefighters are trying to make as much progress on this fire as they possibly can. 11,000 acres, um, you know, in just about 24 hours, really. uh, When you think about it, this fire started just after uh, just before four o'clock on Sunday morning.
0: And can you tell us, I mean, I know there's more than a thousand firefighters or so out there. What are they facing right now?
1: Yeah, so what they're facing right now, they still do have some windy conditions. The humidity level has uh, remained very dry overnight, so that helps increase the fire activity. And of course, warmer temperatures than we normally see this time of the year has also been a bit of a challenge. And of course, you know we're in the, the probably uh, one of the two worst months uh, historically for for fire season. So um, put all those challenges together, and it's it's creating a lot of work for our firefighters.
0: Yes, I actually live in Napa. The the trees and shrubs around my home are shaking. In the wind, and I am very concerned about my neighbors to the north and west of me. Can you talk about the direction this fire is going, this glass incident? Yeah.
1: Yeah, we're kind of watching this. So, of course, the fire started um, near Calistoga, um, a little bit east of there, and then, of course, it came across to Highway 29 and, and started heading towards the communities of Kenwood and, and Santa Rosa. Um, so they're kind of holding it right now at, at that, that point, point. Um, and the way the wind is progressing, uh, it could continue that direction. Um, what firefighters are hoping for is uh, as the red flag conditions subside this afternoon, they might uh, get some relief from those winds.
0: Through yesterday and early this morning, my phone's been buzzing with evacuation orders and warnings, alerts for more and more, a widening swath of uh, this region. It keeps happening constantly. What do you want people to understand about planning around these warnings and heeding these evacuation orders?
1: Yeah, Probably the biggest thing is we want people to understand that it- We've already lost 25, 26 lives this year so far you know, due to wildfires, um, 15 alone on the north complex when the fire burned through the, the communities of Berry Creek and, and Feather Falls. This could definitely happen again if people are not more cautious about what they're doing and they're not heeding the evacuation warnings. The other thing is, is if you don't heed an evacuation warning, you stay behind and our firefighters have to come in to help rescue you. You're taking resources away from stopping the fire. So we ask people to just definitely heed these warnings, pay attention to what's going on around them, and if you feel uncomfortable, go ahead and leave. There's no reason why you can't evacuate without getting a notice.
0: And can you tell us anything about how this fire started early Sunday morning around 4 a.m.?
1: Yeah, our investigators have been on scene since the call went out. So they're checking into what happened, what took place. Um, obviously, you know, uh, back in August, we had a, a swath of what lightning come through, and that made it a little bit more simple some, in some cases to determine what happened. This one a little bit different. Um, so we definitely have our investigators out taking a look to see what happened.
0: Oh, but it sounds like right now there really isn't anything that you can tell us about what may have caused this thing, huh?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, not yet. It should, it'll probably take a little bit of time.
0: Well, Lynn Tolmachoff, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you so much.
1: Great. Thank you for having
0: us. And now I'd like to welcome Jacob Goldstein to the show, co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast. Jacob Goldstein, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. Are you you doing okay out there? It sounds <laughs> sounds like a lot.
0: You know, we are doing okay. But as you know, just a few years ago, the wine country fires that really decimated this area, a lot of people are having flashbacks here about yeah. that. And, uh, you know, the winds, though, I don't believe they are nearly, they are quite as strong as they were in 2017. Um, it's still, the winds have been pretty bad here. So, Definitely the hope is that, you know, as the Cal Fire spokesperson was saying, as things calm down, firefighters will be able to get more of a handle on this. But, you know, in the meantime, there are still other fires burning across the state. So it's a pretty intense situation here, yeah, as you scary. can imagine. Yeah. yeah, so it's actually nice to kind of think of something that's a little more Great. interesting, Great. fun. Let's, let's talk about money a thousand <laughs> yeah, years ago. exactly. Your book was quite playful, actually. Of course, the title, Money, the True Story, of a made-up thing also you know just suggested that it would be sort of that wonderful tone that the planet money podcast has around these big questions like what is money and i couldn't help but wonder as i was reading your book how long you have been thinking about this question of what is money
2: yeah you know uh since 2008 there's actually there's actually a a Day one of my thinking about this. You know, I grew up, I studied English, I didn't study economics, I became a reporter. I sort of never thought that much about money. I was kind of wary of it in some way. You know, I was like, oh, that's something I don't know, I shouldn't be too interested in. It feels morally weird or something. Um, I was covering healthcare at the Wall Street Journal in 2008, and uh, we had a financial crisis. And I went out to dinner with my aunt, who was a businesswoman, uh, very successful in new york and you know it's this moment when the the stock market has crashed and home prices are falling and and you know trillions of dollars of wealth has sort of disappeared which was confounding to me right that was when i started saying like where did the money go (laughs) and she said to me money is fiction which was uh a big moment for me. It was, it was a moment, you know, fiction I knew about, fiction I had studied. And so when I realized that money, this thing that I had thought of as sort of this scientific thing, as this thing I associated with greed, when she called it fiction, I started to think, oh, maybe, maybe there's more here going on than, than I thought. And indeed there was.
0: Yeah. I mean, even though it's been decades since we've been off the gold standard, I think we all have this sort of psychological connection that there's intrinsic value to money, to this printed money that we hold.
2: Yes. And in a way, that's kind of good, right? It's one of those things like maybe we shouldn't think about it too much. Uh, but, But right, there is not, to state the obvious, money is not worth anything on its own. It's only valuable because we all agree to pretend like it is. And because we
0: pretend, it is. Well, let's go back to the beginning, (laughs) and you really do go back back. to the beginning. Well, actually, you know, you you can decide where you kind of want to start us off, but I know that you wanted to immediately dispel us of this notion that money came strictly from barter.
2: Right. So there is this classic idea, which is super reasonable, kind of an elegant hypothesis, right? That, you know, it used to be the case that there was no money, and so if i wanted to exchange with you if i wanted to do business with you trade with you it would it would be it would have to be the case that you had something that i wanted and i had something that you wanted and if we didn't both have something that the other one wanted we'd be out of luck and so then along comes money in this story and it's like oh perfect i'll just give you money for the thing you have that i want but that didn't happen. You know, Aristotle thought that's the way it happened and Adam Smith thought that's what happened. But anthropologists essentially came along in the 20th century and started looking at all different kinds of cultures all over the world. And they realized, you know, we've never seen this thing. We've never seen this barter society that these people have been talking about for thousands of years. And instead what they saw was these webs of relationships and reciprocity, where there's a lot of gift giving, but also obligation. So I will give you something, but then you will be obliged to give me something in the future. Uh, A lot of norms associated with marriage. So if I'm gonna marry somebody in your family, you're gonna marry somebody in my family. There are rules about you have to give me, you know, some number of cows, Often it was cattle uh, with murder if I had killed someone in your family. So Right. There's uh, this whole
0: th- element of restitution as well. Yes,
2: yes, restitution is a good word, yes. And and they're very sort of codified, you know, on the level of norms. Uh, it's very clear what you have to give someone in restitution. And so what we've come to realize is that is the origin of money. And I find that interesting, you know, because the barter story is very much the like money is this cold thing associated with this sort of uh non-emotional marketplace. But the the real story is much more like marriage and murder and family and like all these really intense things which is like oh that's why everybody gets so crazy about money
0: yes and, and it explains your point about how you see it as just so social right money is such a yeah yeah such a social uh, development too and so when did it become something more tangible was it the so, Greeks? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, the Greeks-ish. I mean, wh- th- there are different places to start. But so there was a kingdom in what's now modern-day Turkey, uh, contemporaneous with the sort of rise of Greece, uh, you know, I don't know, 600 B.C.-ish, six 700 B.C., called uh, Lydia. And... Lydia was where Croesus was from, famous rich guy in the ancient world. Lydia was rich in uh, electrum, which is a naturally occurring uh, alloy of gold and silver. So in the ground in Lydia was all this rock made of gold and silver, which is great, right? It's great if your kingdom has a lot of gold and silver. But they had this sort of ancient first world problem, which was, you know, gold was valuable by its weight, by its mass, and silver was valuable by its weight. But when it comes out of the ground in a mix, that's like not optimally convenient, right? You got to like test each uh, little chunk to see, well, how much gold is it? How much silver is it? So what the Lydians did was they started taking uh, chunks of electrum that had a standard ratio of gold to silver and breaking them into standard weight chunks and then stamping a lion onto the chunk Uh, the lion was the symbol of the of the king basically the regal symbol and so those lumps of electrum with the lion on them that's the first coin basically that is the proto coin and the lydians liked them and eventually they started making them of just silver and just gold but really just silver silver was the big one there and Then they got conquered by the persians and they disappeared and that might have been it but for the fact that the greeks who were right next door you know greece is right there next to turkey uh they discovered coins in their trade presumably with the lydians and they loved coins you know the the greeks were developing this really new kind of civilization right like the classic kind of western civ thing this proto-democracy is certainly bad democracies by our standards, but but you know, this new thing. And coins were useful for them because they were too big to have that kind of warm fuzzy reciprocity, you know, I'm gonna marry you and we have norms. They were too big for that kind of rule. Uh, Other civilizations had had a very top down sort of autocratic, like the the king or the queen or the priest tells everybody, you know, what to what to get and what to give. But the Greeks were kind of too democratic for that. So coins, you know, money was like a great middle ground that let them have this flourishing society.
0: Well, after the break, I want to talk with you about what happens in China and how it's a harbinger of of what we see today in terms of the use of money backed by nothing. We're talking with Jacob Goldstein, co-host of Planet Money and author of the new book Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And uh, I want to invite you our listeners to join us. How would you describe what money is? What does it mean to you? What's been your relationship to money? Or what questions or concerns do you have about our nation's financial system? Give us a call 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. We'll get to your calls as soon as we can stay with us You're listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. We're talking with Jacob Goldstein, co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast, about his new book Money: The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. It's a funny history of the origins of money that's also bringing context to how we treat money as a society today and the pandemic era changes and interventions that we're seeing as well. And you, our listeners, if you want to join us, you can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, email us at forum at kqed.org, or call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. So could you talk about Kublai Khan and the role that he played in essentially turning money into abstraction?
2: Yeah, so, so Kublai Khan was, was a Mongol emperor in the 13th century. I mean, that story really starts a few hundred years before he got there. So, uh, you know, around a thousand ad by this point people in china as in the west had been using metal coins uh, for a long time for more than a thousand years um, in fact metal coins seem to have ar- arisen independently in china and around a thousand a.d uh, in a uh, province of sichuan in china they were actually using iron for coins and uh, this was the era when uh, you know, the value of a coin was based on the value of the metal and iron was not very valuable. So iron coins weren't very valuable. For, for example, you needed a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt, right? I think of it like having to go grocery shopping with pennies or something. <laughs> so it's terrible money, basically. This merchant in Sichuan has this idea. Uh, he starts giving people a receipt. He says, come leave your iron coins with me and I'll give you a paper receipt, like a like a co check ticket yeah for your
0: iron coin i like that and, visual of the coat check ticket <laughs>
2: yeah right i mean it's it's basically it like you give me your thing and i'll give you this this piece of paper you bring me the piece of paper and i'll give you your thing back so people start using the co check ticket the piece of paper to buy stuff right you get your co check ticket you go to some other so you're like yeah you know whatever goldstein has my iron coins on deposit just take this co check ticket and give me the thing and it becomes money. The government uh, sort of takes over the business of printing money first in Sichuan and then around the country where they use bronze coins, which are better than iron, but still uh, you know, not as light as paper. And this is an era, of course, when there's no motorized transportation or anything. So paper money is a real technological innovation, right? It allows people to trade, especially trade at a distance much more efficiently. And this happens to be at a moment uh, when China is embracing sort of the market more. People are are trading more across greater distances. Uh, There starts to be technological innovations. They invent movable type and the magnetic compass and cities thrive with more trade. There's a restaurant scene and uh, they're doing great. And this is kind of a novel thing in the ancient world. You start to see economic growth. You start to see people getting richer, which, you know, won't happen in the West kind of in aggregate until oh, 1800, after 1800. So this is like this really early, really incredible economic revolution driven in part, not entirely, but in part by paper money. And then the Mongols come and attack China around what, 1200, 12 something. And then Kublai Khan becomes the great Khan, and he's ruling not only uh, China, but, you know, much of Asia. And the Mongols love paper money. You know, they're nomadic. They have this vast empire, and they recognize that it is very efficient. You know, they're trying to move across great distances on horseback. Paper money is great. And so, as you alluded to before, Kublai Khan uh, takes this next step, right? When he takes over, money is still a co-check ticket is still a receipt and you know the real money the actual valuable thing is the the coins typically bronze coins that it is redeemable for but at some point Kublai khan says you know what we're not going to do that anymore this new paper money it's just paper and it's money and you know use it or i'll kill you basically <laughs> um and it it works right it's sort of amazing sort of not i don't know i feel both ways about it like Obviously, he has, you know, state, the threat of state violence is very compelling. But also, I think, you know, it's been a long time since they've been using paper money at, at this point. You know, it's hundreds of years that they've been doing it. So, you know, as long as everybody can remember and their parents can remember, and their grandparents can remember, paper money has been money. So I feel like to some extent, people were just like, OK, yeah, paper money. We trust the paper. You know, the government is basically functional. Let's do it. And it works.
0: Well, you know, we've got some calls coming in. I'm going to go to Gwen in San Francisco to start us off. Hi, Gwen. Join us.
3: Hi. um, I was one of the – you talk about paper, but the new problem is plastic money. And I was a street vendor years ago, one of the first San Francisco ones, and then I went over to Berkeley, so I always dealt in cash. In fact, I didn't get a a credit card until I was in my 50s, and then you started – you sort of needed one. But um, I'm also a te- retired teacher, but I watched a lot of my African-American colleagues would have multiple credit cards. They would have store credit cards. They would have your visa, the Amex and all that. And now they're uh, putting out, um, their children are asking help for to bury them. And one colleague of mine, she needs help because her she had a stroke and her uh, she doesn't have gap insurance. So we've gotten into, I think, the more than the paper money, the plastic money has gotten us into a lot of troubles, huh. particularly uh, people of color, because they don't look at it. I look at money as an abstract form, like the writer wrote. It's something that's, you know, not really real, but you got to be careful with it.
0: Do you feel like dealing in cash helped you be more careful with it because it was something you yeah. could hold in your hand? Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I paid the bill right away. I didn't have 22% interest like you do on the uh, credit card. Also, I want to mention, I have to give thanks to my grandfather, who was the tailor. He dealt in cash, and my father, who I thought used to— Think he was the cheapest person in the world. He would always say, "Don't live beyond your means." Mm-hmm. Whenever I had to borrow money from him, which well, is really- well, as a as a cheap dad
2: myself, <laughs> I want to give a shout out to your father. That's that's. Uh, I say the same thing to my kids. I say, if you if you spend less than you make, you're going to be okay.
0: Well, Gwen, thanks so much for sharing that. And it's it actually really does. <clears throat> I mean it. It brings us to modern day in the sense that we are having conversations right now, uh, Jacob Goldstein, about becoming a cashless society or that that's where we're headed.
2: Yes, yes. And I mean, I think there's a number of interesting things about that, right? One is, uh, if that happens, it will make, you know, even worse the problem of people who don't have a bank account, basically, right? There's this interesting problem where, on the one hand, Uh, Getting a credit card if you are not ready or under uh, bad terms that aren't clear to you, that is a problem. But on the other end of the spectrum, not having a bank account at all, uh, especially in a world where cash is harder to use, that is also a problem, right? You uh, You get charged high fees everywhere. So that's already a problem it will become even more of a problem if cash goes away. I mean, that is a solvable problem. In many other countries, the government essentially forces banks to provide anyone who wants a subsidized no-fee bank account, you know, with a debit card, not a credit card. And so that part of sort of the cashless society seems solvable. It's just a matter of, of political will. I mean, one other thing that's really interesting to me in terms of the cashless society is it feels like Cash is going away. It feels like that to me, all the more so since the pandemic. Like, I don't want to go in that little ATM room and breathe the air, right? I'm going to not get cash or use cash if I can help it. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the aggregates, when you look at the numbers, the Federal Reserve publishes of how much cash is out there in the world, it's actually increasing. It's increasing fast. And it has been for years since before the pandemic. The amount of paper money in the world is growing faster than the economy. So weirdly, we feel like we're moving into a cashless world, but there is more and more cash in the world.
0: Why? Why is there more and more cash in the world than ever?
2: Good question. I mean, part of the answer is we don't know, which is kind of the whole point about cash, right? The thing cash is great for now is uh, anonymous transactions. Uh, What we do know is an incredible amount of the cash in the world is $100 bills. Uh, There are more hundreds than ones. There are uh, more than 40 hundreds for every man, woman, and child in America, $4,000 in hundreds. So that points to a few things. Uh, One is, People outside the U.S. like to hold dollars. Dollars, you know, despite our worries in many ways about the country and the economy, dollars are still seen as the safest kind of money in the world. So lots of people in countries where uh, the banking system is unstable, where the currency is unstable, will hold paper money as, as their savings. So that's one. And that seems fine, good, a nice service. Uh, the other is more sketchy. The other is crime right? Like if you're going to commit a crime, having a bunch of $100 bills is way better than putting your crime on your credit card. Uh, And we actually saw this uh, just this spring in California, in LA, uh, when the economy was shutting down, the stores were shutting down. There were all these stores in downtown LA that international drug dealers, drug dealers from both China and Mexico, used to launder their cash. And when California shut down, they couldn't launder their cash anymore. And so federal agents started seizing millions and millions of dollars that were just piling up uh, with these drug dealers because they couldn't launder their cash anymore.
0: Wow. Well, you know, and that actually um, reminds me of another reason that some people I know prefer cash, and that is the anonymity or the sense of anonymity that you get when you use cash as opposed to having all of your transactions recorded electronically.
2: Yeah, I mean that really seems like uh, the main thing it offers. Like, if you have a bank account, the only thing cash does that like your phone or a credit card does not offer is anonymity.
0: And let me bring Don from San Francisco in. Hi, Don, join us.
3: Hi, thank you very much. Uh, um, fascinating. I, I just wanted to make a comment. You know, there's lots of there's lots of back and forth about the benefits of a cashless society. There's certainly commentary out there about well, it. it you know can help prevent crime because uh, all of the cash that's used uh, by the more nefarious uh, nefarious folk that could all go
2: away. But the reality is is that once you, once, you take, uh, once you take cash
3: off the table and everything becomes uh, digitized transactions, you actually have the potential to lose something else. And, and that is uh, economic freedom. because
2: if everything is controlled at the flip of a switch with regards to uh, digital control, um,
1: there's really, I believe, there's really a high risk there, and I just love to hear your comments about that. Hmm.
0: Thanks, Don Jacob Goldstein. Yeah, well, I will say so. Um,
2: Bitcoin is, is a word that comes to mind. I'm not, I'm not like pushing Bitcoin. I don't have a pro or anti view on Bitcoin. But the history of Bitcoin, the prehistory of Bitcoin, is really interesting. Uh, as you were talking, Don, I thought of the the sort of first paper written on kind of the road to Bitcoin was way back in the 1980s by this cryptographer actually in the Bay Area. Uh, He was a guy named uh, David Shum. He was at Berkeley, a a PhD at Berkeley at the time. And um, he wrote this paper uh, that was incredibly prescient, uh, talking about how the whole world was shifting into this kind of digital ledger, and this surveillance society was coming. And he wrote this paper called, I think, A Transaction System to Make Big Brother Obsolete. And he was talking about exactly what you're talking about. He basically said, look, the world is becoming digital. Once money is digital, we're all going to be surveilled all the time. And so what we need to come up with is a uh, technological way to use money anonymously and he sort of set in train this you know 20 plus year effort by largely bay area based sort of techno libertarians to come up with anonymous digital money and bitcoin isn't quite anonymous but it is it is pretty close and it is the result of that intellectual tradition
0: (laughs) well talk about something that really hammers home money as a construct It's Bitcoin. Yes, and, yes. And how it gave My bad. dad says
2: to me, why is it worth anything? I say, just because people will pay money for it.
0: Yes, they've agreed. You know, it reminds me of when I was reading that part in your book where you were talking about how money sort of gets created out of thin air and people assign value to it and how it went back to the English goldsmiths. <laughs> and this idea of creating something called loans i'm wondering if you could if you could remind us of that history a little bit because i really feel like it's such a critical part of above our banking system essentially what we have now
2: yes yes great so so this is the goldsmiths in uh, in london mainly in the uh, 1600s and they start out by doing again, I think without knowing it, what that merchant in Sichuan had done uh, hundreds of years earlier, right? This is paper money is just now uh, getting to Europe really and certainly just getting to England in the 1600s. So first, you know, people are leaving the gold with the goldsmiths. The goldsmiths are giving the people the code check. We know the story, right? The code check turns into money. Okay, fine. But the next step the goldsmiths make is the big one that leads us to, to banking. And that is they start making loans to people in the form of these co check tickets for gold, right? So it's not now somebody's like, here's my gold, and the goldsmith is like, okay, here's your ticket for the gold. It's just somebody's like, give me a loan, and the goldsmith gives them a piece of paper that says, this piece of paper is redeemable for whatever, 100 pounds of gold at my shop. Um, and so what they are doing when they're doing that is creating money that does not, that had not existed before, right? That piece of paper is money on the streets of London. Uh, and and it is new money. And it seems wild, it seems obvious on its face that if everybody with a piece of paper uh, for gold came back to the goldsmith at the same time, the goldsmith would not have all the gold, right? And indeed that is true. Uh, That's what we call a bank run today because banks work the same way today, right? When banks make a loan to you, when you go get a mortgage or whatever, and the bank loans you the money, they don't have a stack of bills sitting in the vault to back up that money, right? They make loans for money they essentially don't have. And we call that fractional reserve banking, and it does make it easier to get a loan, but it comes with this inherent flaw. And it's not because bankers are greedy or evil or whatever. It's just a structural fact about banking that it is inherently unstable because if everybody with a claim on the bank comes at the same time and says, give me my money, the bank won't have it.
0: Do you know what totally hit that home for me was when I (laughs) watched... It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, the classic. And George (laughs) Bailey was like, your money's not here. It's not here. It's like in your home, in your home. And I remember being a kid and just being like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. But I mean, yes, even though people didn't all, not all people necessarily had like, you know nefarious motives or sinister motives it did become a situation in the u.s where you had to really control the banks from going insane
2: yes or just going bust right so uh i mean the the big shift in terms of what we're talking about was deposit insurance, right? Today, as I think most people know, if you put money in the bank up to a certain amount, a few hundred thousand dollars, the government insures your deposit, right? So that was not the case a hundred years ago. It was not the case until the depression. Uh, and. And so in that other universe, in the pre-deposit insurance universe, uh, your deposit is a loan to the bank. I mean, it's still technically a loan to the bank. You just know you're going to get paid back because the government guarantees it. Uh, And, you know, you're making a loan to the bank, and if the bank goes belly up, maybe they won't pay back the loan. It's a risk.
0: And so fast forward to the present and how we got around all of those things for the system that we have now. (laughs)
2: Well, I mean, so again, the depression, like the depression is really the the birth of modern money, right? Going into the depression, we were on the gold standard. Uh, There was no deposit insurance. And then what happened was, you know, the, the sort of classic story is about the stock market crash of 29. And that was indeed the beginning, but it wasn't really what made things so bad. What made things so bad was essentially the gold standard, because what happened was after the stock market crashed, uh, people started losing their jobs, you know, it was what we would call a recession. Uh, and and then after people started losing their jobs, uh, prices started to fall uh, because there was less demand, so, you know, uh, stores and merchants were cutting prices. Uh, and as prices were falling, wages were falling, you know, stores were like, sorry, prices are going down, i got to cut your wages. But when prices and wages are falling, uh, it's really bad for people who have debt, right? Because your debt is not falling. So if you used to have to work you know, one week a month uh, to pay your debts, uh, but your uh, pay gets cut, your debts are still the same. So you have to work more and more to pay off the same amount of debt. And so what's happening is uh, more people were going bankrupt. And as people were going bankrupt, not being able to pay their debts Wow. You want to finish after the break? Yeah, we'll finish after do. the break. And after
0: okay. the break, we have quite a few people who'd love to get your thoughts on modern monetary theory. So we'll jump into that okay, as we well. We can do that too. <laughs> Stay with us for more with Jacob Goldstein as we talk about money. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Jacob Goldstein, co-host of NPR's Planet Money podcast about... Money. His new book is Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And you, our listeners, are with us at 866-733-6786 if you want to call in. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I mean, just before the break, Jacob Goldstein, we were talking about the gold standard. And I was just thinking about, I mean, can you imagine if that's the system that we had Today, given what has happened with the pandemic, I mean, where would we be in this economy if we... We'd be
2: in a Great Depression. (laughs) Yeah. That's the answer, right? I mean, I went on too long before, my fault, I'm sorry. But (laughs) the short version is, you know, what we needed at the time was for the Federal Reserve to create a bunch of money to stop prices from falling, which would have basically stopped things from getting worse. And under the gold standard, that can't happen. Sort of the point of the gold standard is you can't just create money. And, and people thought the gold standard was the only way to do money. And Roosevelt became the president. He said, you know what? We can do whatever we want and we're gonna go off the gold standard. And his own advisor said, it's the end of Western civilization. <laughs> and they were wrong and he was right. And you know, that wasn't the end of the depression by any means, but it was the bottom. It was when things started to get better. And so, you know, yes, we would be in another great depression if we were on the gold standard today.
0: So then Alan writes, would the guests care to comment on modern monetary theory as a means of avoiding economic disasters caused by the effects of pandemics and other catastrophes?
2: Sure. Um, How can I make this one not too long of an answer? So I will say, you know, it is the case, well, what is modern monetary theory? It's a complicated big set of ideas about the economy and how money works. But uh, but a few key tenets are, one, a country uh, that prints its own money and borrows in its own money, can never run out of money because it can always print more. That's not a controversial assertion. But, you know, the sort of standard economic next thing to say is, yes, but if you print too much money, you'll have a lot of inflation and that will be really bad. And the uh, modern monetary theory, MMT sort of next thought is is uh, a little different than that. It says, not necessarily. You know, what we really care about is not how much money are we printing, but is does everybody who wants a job have a job? Are we at sort of full employment? Are we fully you know, using all of the resources we have in our economy? If we get to that point and we keep putting more money out there and people are trying to buy more stuff then, then we'll have inflation and then we can worry about it. And maybe one thing we can do then is raise taxes to take some money out of the system, but we shouldn't worry about it in advance. And then there are lots of other sort of possible changes they suggest, including the government, Uh, offering a job to anyone who wants one so that's the basic framework of modern monetary theory i mean the question from uh, the listener is in the context of the current pandemic and i will say you know obviously we don't live in the mmt world now but Uh, The Federal Reserve has created trillions of dollars since uh, the pandemic hit. Uh, The federal government has borrowed trillions of dollars uh, since the pandemic hit, which are, you know, directionally sort of correct from an MMT point of view. And in fact, we do not have inflation. And the people who are kind of betting on the future of inflation are betting that inflation will be quite low.
0: So you're saying it's kind of worked out for now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean,
2: you know, especially the initial response to the crisis, the kind of March-April response to the crisis from the Fed was very strong, which is somewhat less surprising than the fact that the congressional response was also pretty strong. I mean, you know, there were the checks to everybody, but uh, more importantly, I think there to some
0: entities that didn't deserve it, but yes. Uh,
2: Well, yes. Although, you know, I'll tell you, you're right about that. But I talked to one of the neil kashkari he was actually a california guy for a while but he's the president of the minneapolis fed now and he said right i talked to him right in march as everything was closing down he said look he ran the tarp the the 2008 crisis program in in the treasury department he said look we made a mistake then we did too little because we were afraid of giving money to people who don't deserve it. And if you're afraid of that, you're gonna err on the side of doing too little. He said, let this time, let's err on the side of doing too much. And if we do that, there will be stories about businesses getting money that don't deserve it and dead people getting money. But if it means we get money out to everybody or more people who need it, it's worth it. And I found that quite compelling. Hmm. And you know, I think especially the expanded unemployment, you know, people got an extra six hundred dollars a week in unemployment insurance through much of the summer, which is a lot and which was good. I mean the problem. Problem is now it has run out and clearly we need something else and Congress is not doing it. But at least initially the government did better than one might expect.
0: Yes and of course certainly my quibble is with larger businesses not not people and certainly not the unemployment benefit because that is something that is up for debate. I mean there are concerns that it disincentivizes people to work which is something that you hear more from the Republican side of the aisle. But uh, let me bring in some more callers. John in San Jose join us. Hi John.
4: Hi, Mina. Thanks for taking my call. You know, this is a really good show, and I'm glad uh, this, is, this topic has been brought up because it's something that, that I, you know, in, in my social circles, I, I, I talk about this concept of, you know, this abstract thing called currency, this human concept that actually doesn't exist. And, you know, the common response I get from people in my circles is kind of a, um, you know, kind of a, wow, that's, that, that's kind of crazy sounding, um, you know, what are you talking about? And you know it's not very well received. And um, when, when almost like I'm being abstract, when the fact is, you know, money itself is completely abstract. But I, wanna, I want to, I want I'd like to guess the guest to comment on this. And you know, one of the things that continues to to bother me every single day, you know, in this, you know, in this monetary society with this imaginary thing called currency, is, you know. The, the top 1%, the billionaires, you know, the, the, the people that have, you know, over 40% of this imaginary wealth, um, you know, at what point are we as a society going to say, you know what, Mr. Bezos, um, we no longer agree you have all this money. And, and you know, we are – we're not going to steal it. We're not going to take it. We're going to reclaim it and, and redistribute it. Um, because, you know, the only difference between Jeff Bezos and me is Jeff Bezos has – way way more numbers on a computer screen and we all agree to that but you know i would like to not agree to that anymore and uh so you know what's stopping us as a society from doing that
0: well john thanks i mean jacob goldstein your reaction to what john is saying
2: uh, i mean it, money is a choice right the it's a set of rules that we have all sort of implicitly and explicitly agreed to. And if we want to choose something different, we can, right? I mean, the, the peaceful way to do that is through Congress. Uh, people have revolutions sometimes. Uh, there are simple things uh, that that we could do politically that would you know, redistribute money, right? You could just simply uh, raise the rate on capital gains tax, right? Capital gains is the tax you pay when you sell stock or some other asset that has appreciated. And uh, capital gains fall wildly disproportionately upon the rich, right? Very rich people own almost all the assets. So the vast majority of capital gains come from the rich. Capital gains tax rates are relatively low. They're lower for middle- and high-income people than the tax on income, right? That's a choice. It didn't used to be the case. So, like, a simple redistributive move would be just raise the capital gains tax. You don't have to totally abolish money or have a revolution to do that.
0: Could you give me your reaction to the revelations from the New York Times that the president paid just $750 in federal taxes in 2016 and 2017, and nothing in 11 of the past 18 years? I mean, reading the way that he got around some of that really... I felt like had a direct relationship to some of the things that you were talking about in your book in terms of the things that we choose to uh give value to and how we assign those values but anyway your reaction
2: Yeah, I mean, it seems like not a lot. Right? That's my first reaction. Seems like not much. Um look, I mean, the tax code is a mess right the tax code is this extraordinary complex thing that is like a pile right we only started having income taxes the beginning of the 20th century and the tax code started out relatively simple and then people add things and make exceptions to exceptions and make special deals and you know there's a tremendous amount of lobbying and special little loopholes here and another little detail there and i think you see a lot of that in this story right and again it's the product of a set of choices It doesn't even feel like we have a choice a lot of the time, which is sad, Uh, but we do, at least theoretically we do, uh, and we could change it. I mean, there are lots of different ways to do taxes, just like there are lots of different ways to do money. Most developed countries have uh, a consumption tax, a VAT tax, basically a sales tax, like a kind of sales tax. And we have that at the state level and at the city level, but we don't have a federal uh, sales tax, right? You could do that. And now that can be somewhat regressive if uh, low-income people uh, spend a higher proportion of their income than high-income people, but you can fix that. Like, We could do taxes totally differently if we wanted. We're just sort of politically choosing not
0: to. Yes. But the way that we were able to, he was able to monetize his losses. I mean, I know this is all under investigation, but there was just this yeah. part of me, it was like, wow, you know, these, what we, how we value losses, for example, right? Just feels like, you're right. A decision that we make politically. And I mean, going back to John's point earlier about you can, we can make choices and we can decide certain things and Major change is possible. And then your book really does show how there were these tumultuous moments where major change happens. I don't know if the pandemic is one of those things, but I mean, it is interesting to see all that has emerged um, as a result of it and that it's revealing about our, our system, our economy, and the quality of people's lives. Anyway, we're getting some really nice um, reflections on how on people's relationship to money, and I wanted to read a couple of them right now. Michael tweets, I agree with the caller who says spending cash makes her more careful. If I go out for an evening, I start with a certain amount of cash, and when it's gone, it's gone, while if I use my credit card, it would be all too easy to order another drink. Kathy writes, I grew up with a dad who collected coins. He saw money as a form of art and history. He would open his musty safe some evenings and my brother and I would watch as dad went through his little collection, telling us the history of the coins. And Carrie writes, my late mother, a depression era kid, prefaced everything with how much it cost. Now I have a friend that does the same thing. Yuck. What is the politically correct way to tell her that I'm not interested in the cost of everything that she purchases? I am curious if you, through this um, process of writing the book, of being the co-host of Planet Money, have sort of examined your own relationship to money, like growing up, or, or how that influences now?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so before I covered money, uh, I think i thought i didn't care about money but actually i was obsessed with it is is actually what i've come to think you know i certainly obviously i'm a npr reporter like i didn't set out to get rich but i i'm really into saving money i'm really into not spending money like for my 20s my whole game was just like how little can i spend which i didn't think of at the time as being obsessed with money i thought of as being like oh i'm like money is not my thing But in a weird way, it is a kind of obsession with money. Just like, you know, some people might brag about having a fancy thing or want to show off a fancy brand. But there's another game, which is the sort of flip side of that coin, which is you give someone a compliment and they tell you how cheap the thing was. Or they tell you that they got it on sale, which is another kind of preoccupation with the money.
0: Hmm, I'm more of
2: that person. I'm (laughs) going to tell you that I got a deal.
0: Well, I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. All right. Well, let me grab some more calls in our last few minutes. Uh, Let me go to Martin in Hayward. Hi, Martin. You're with us.
3: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I'm wondering if your speaker could address uh, the fact that uh, because money creating out of thin air is created as debt, that comes along with an interest rate automatically attached to it. Doesn't the system, the monetary system, lock our whole economy into a requirement that it must continually be expanding and therefore is one of the systemic roots of global warming because the economy must continue to grow or it will collapse. Hmm.
2: Thanks, Martin. That's a lot. Let me see. Um, Money and debt are linked. Uh, Do you need to have economic growth? I don't know. I mean, Economic growth is built into a lot of our assumptions. I mean, there's a lot of assumptions in there. So money and debt are linked, yes. We like economic growth. I don't know that the nature of money requires economic growth. Then the next question, which is actually quite an interesting question, is can you have economic growth uh, and solve climate change? Right? Can you have economic growth and take carbon out of the atmosphere? And I think the answer to that is yes, although that's a debated question. But I haven't given up on, on pairing those two. That's, a, that's an open debate, though.
0: Wow. Well, thanks for that, Jacob. And Noel wants to know: Has the guest read "Debt: The First Five Thousand Years" by David Graeber?
2: I have, and I wondered. Actually, the previous the previous guest question made me think of of David Graeber's book, and he talks a lot about uh, money as coming out of debt. He just passed away, by the way. Uh, I mean, I, I found that book interesting. It's Uh, Yeah, I don't know that I have any insight on on his book. My book is shorter and there's more jokes.
0: (laughs) All right, let me bring John from Oakland in here. Hi, John.
3: Hi there. Uh, A couple of thoughts and questions for your guest. One is you talked about how money didn't evolve from barter just by trading uh, these bits of silver and gold. But the first question is, didn't it uh, eventually evolve into that? And then the second question is, since we're creating more money through national debt or uh, national borrowing so that there's more money than all the goods in society, is that what's causing inflation or will cause inflation at some point? Uh,
2: so on the inflation question, that's a really interesting question. And... It's one people have been asking basically since the financial crisis. You know, after the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve launched this series of unprecedented programs. It was creating trillions of dollars out of thin air. That was like new then. And lots of people, lots of, you know, smart, thoughtful people said, this is going to create inflation. There's more money. And that's going to mean everybody's going to be trying to buy more stuff and we're going to have inflation. And one of the maybe most surprising things about the past 10 or so years in the U.S. economy has been the absence of inflation. You know, year after year, the economy was slowly getting better. Unemployment was coming down. And we kept thinking, People kept thinking, oh, now unemployment's 5%. Everybody's going to start getting raises, and then that's going to drive up prices. And it didn't happen. And unemployment went down to 4%, and it didn't happen. And it went down some more. And, and we never saw inflation. And so even now, you know, the Fed is printing more money, the government is borrowing more money, but you can look at basically long-term bond rates of different types to see what people who are actually betting their money on the future think about inflation. And people still think inflation will be very low, which is kind of surprising and quite Mm -hmm. interesting.
0: All right, well, let me see if I can squeeze Alan from San Francisco in at the very end here. Alan, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thanks for waiting, Uh, go ahead.
3: Just a quick question. Uh, Moving from a, a cash to a cashless society has a sort of an odd result because when I use my credit card, the person who accepts that credit card as a payment for a service or a, a product has to pay the credit card company a, a certain uh, percentage of the uh, of the purchase. And that is built into the uh, price that I pay for it. So you have this odd situation where... You have to spend money in order to spend money.
2: Hmm. It's true. Uh, uh, there, there are some uh, efficiency gains businesses get, you know, uh, from using a credit card instead of cash. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cost, just in the same way that if they use cash, they have to pay for an armored car, right? So that's a, that's a similar kind of thing with cash instead of a credit card.
0: Well, Jacob Goldstein, thank you so much for reminding us all to remember sort of the roots of money and doing it in sort of an entertaining way, a very explanatory way through your book. I really enjoyed it. Money, the true story of a made up thing. If there was something you wanted to leave our audience with, some kind of final thought with regard to money, you got 30 seconds to do it.
2: I mean, you know, I think... What I try and do in the book is think of money not in a moral way, not as a good thing or a bad thing, but just as a really interesting thing that has this set of stories with interesting people doing big, wild things that explain sort of how society works.
0: Yes, and make choices, really. And given the fact that they do, we actually have maybe a little more power than we realize in this system. Well, Jacob Goldstein, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks so much.
2: Oh, it was really fun. Thanks for having me
0: jacob goldstein uh, the co-host of npr's planet money podcast and now author of the book money the true story of a made-up thing blanca torres produced today's segment i'm mina kim thanks so much for listening